morning. If you have your Bibles, open those to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. One of the most well-known teachings of Jesus is called the Sermon on the Mount. I would imagine as those things flashed across the screen, even if you did not realize that that's where they're found in Scripture, you recognize some of them. Because some of those are things that we quote all the time. And if we're being honest, some of those are things that we misquote all of the time. So my hope over the next few weeks is that as a church, we grow together and get to know one another in light of what Jesus teaches us in Matthew chapter 5 about who he is and about how he functions. And what it means for our lives to line up with who Jesus is and how Jesus functions. When you get to Matthew chapter 5, you pick up in verse 1 where it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them saying this, Blessed are the self-confident because they will rule the world. Blessed are positive thinkers because they don't need anyone else's comfort. Blessed are the cocky and the assertive because they get everything that they want. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for fame because they will have the most likes on social media. <laughs> Blessed are the vengeful because they will beat you into submission and get the respect they believe they deserve. Blessed are the impure pleasure seekers because they get the stuff that they want. Blessed are those who beat their opponents because winners get to write history. Blessed are the popular because everyone wants to crown them king and queen. Those aren't the words of Jesus. Those are the words of our culture. That's what the world teaches us about who God is and or about who, who the world is and how the world is supposed to function. That's what we get when we interact with people for the first time or maybe the second or third time. That's the way that the world functions, right? Jesus stands up in a world that looked very much different because they were wearing basically dresses. Even the men. But he begins to teach to people who have, though a different cultural context, a similar tone. Their world was defined by who had the most power and prestige. Those who were liked the most. Those who had been viewed as popular and the most acceptable. And Jesus stands up in front of a crowd of people. And he doesn't say to them what I just read to you. He says something that's completely different than what we just read. Jesus makes statements to these people not about, not so much about who they are, but about what his followers should be. We see certain things in the Sermon on the Mount. When you get to verse 5, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and he sat down. And scripture says that he opened his mouth to teach them. Typical teaching of Jesus' day was to sit down in front of a crowd. That will probably never happen in here. 
I don't sit and teach. It's very uncomfortable for me. But for the world that Jesus lived in, that was the most comfortable place for him to be. Sitting as they listened to him. And the scriptures say that the crowds gathered around him. And as the crowds gathered around Jesus, he begins to teach to his disciples. So the first question that we ask in a world that is very far removed from Jesus is, who is the Sermon on the Mount for? Because people love to quote it, even those who are far from our faith. Politicians of every flavor have quoted the Sermon on the Mount. They have let us know their thoughts to it. Uh, celebrities quote the Sermon on the Mount. Who is the Sermon on the Mount from Jesus really for? Is it for the crowd or is it for the disciple? And the answer to that question is yes. Jesus begins to speak to his disciples knowing that this crowd of people was happening to overhear him. Now, who are these people that are here? Who is the crowd? I don't know as to your familiarity with Jesus at this point in history. But even here, Jesus has gained quite a bit of a following. People love Jesus. Give me a J, J, you've got your J. Give me an Jesus, Jesus, you've got your Jesus. When I say Jesus, you say Christ. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. They love Jesus. They think Jesus is a really big deal. And the crowd was full of, shall we call them, rubberneckers. And we all know what a rubbernecker is. If you've ever been on the interstate or 288 and you noticed on the other side of the road, things were stopped. Those who want to see what has happened. And the crowd's full of those people watching Jesus. Wanting to see who Jesus is and how he's going to function. They're not so much about following after him. Let's just watch the show. So the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus teaches to the disciples, it is a call to the crowd. But to the disciples, it's also a declaration to them. The declaration of the disciples, Jesus is saying to those who are his, to those who know him and love him, who have experienced him in full, this is who you are. This is who you are. Whereas to the crowd and the call that Jesus gives to them, this is who you can be. For the disciples, the Sermon on the Mount is a statement of Jesus saying, this is who you are. And for those who have been gathered to just overhear, this is who you can be. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus saying to the world that he lived in and saying to our world now, this idea of the most popular, most attractive, the most socially acceptable and adept, the brightest, I'm going to turn that on its head. The Sermon on the Mount is a statement of Jesus as he says to the world that listens to him, this is God showing us what the future should look like in the here and now. I love, um, look, we're going to get to know each other and some of you are going to decide you don't want to know me anymore. But I just need to be real with you that I'm going to be who I am. Hopefully you'll be who you are and we'll have a good time being those things together. But with that, I just need to let you know there are certain things that I really love. I love science fiction. 
I think science fiction is fantastic. I'm also a history major. My undergraduate is in education history. So what that means, as you've heard before, those who can't um, teach, well, I could not interact with history, so I would teach about it, I suppose. I love history. I also love to think about not just the past, but possible future. I love time travel stories. I love anything that tells me this is what could happen. Whether that's a story about a girl with a bow and an arrow going to war and battle with other kids with weapons. Or if that's a story about a different type of future. I love the idea of thinking what will happen to travel through time. To be able to see what's happening in front of us. What may happen. To look at a world and say, hey, this doesn't seem to be right. When Jesus begins to preach the Sermon on the Mount... He's saying to these people, hey, this is what God's future really looks like. But I want this future to be present right now. I want it to be completely on top of us. I want those of us who have decided that this message of Jesus is for me to see that we are operating in a way that contradicts everything that I read a few moments ago. That being someone who would follow after Jesus does not simply mean that we gather together in rooms like this and make sure that we sing songs that affirm who Jesus is, but that our lives would affirm who Jesus is. That we gather together to worship Jesus, not because it is what we do because we've grown up in Texas or Tennessee or wherever the rest of you have grown up because there's like 47 states represented. But as we gather together each week, it's us declaring to a world, this is who Jesus says that we are. So this is a declaration to the disciples. It's a call to the crowd. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we get to do both. We get to declare who we are while inviting those who we spend our time with to experience this Jesus in full. What do we see in the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus teaches? We've got to be careful with it because if we're not careful with the Sermon on the Mount, specifically the Beatitudes, what happens is we would read this and we would hear Jesus saying to us, try harder, do better, function differently. When he is actually not saying try harder or do better, he's saying this is the life that God has provided for you in full. So the message of Jesus when we really get to the Beatitudes is blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is making a statement to us. This is what God's people look like, altogether different in the everyday. So if we're evaluating ourselves and you evaluate the person who sits in your chair and I evaluate the person who stands behind this wooden thing <laughs> do I function differently than the world that I live in 
What does this passage point out to us? If, if you're a note taker, and I, I, the rumor is some of you are, the first thing that we see in the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus begins to point to the problem. He points out the problem within each and every one of us. Go with me to verse 3, 4, and 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You see, as Jesus teaches a development, a transition from one state to another, these are not things that operate apart from one another. They are what take place when we have grasped who God really is. The word blessed is a word that we like to use a lot. We like to talk about how this is a blessing or that is a blessing or hashtag blessing. We love to bless things. We bless hearts. We bless people when they sneeze. Blessing is part of living in certain parts of our world. The word, however, is much, much more than we give it credit for. There's two words in the New Testament used for the word blessed. One of those is the word eudaimonia, which sounds like an infection. <laughs> eudaimonia is not the word used here. It's an idea of a happiness based on circumstance. And we all know how that works. We all have different situations that have happened for us that have caused us to emote happiness. Am I right? So I see babies in the room. And the baby's born and you are so happy. Or even uh, seeing teenagers in the room. You turn 16 years old and your mom and dad have a new set of keys to a 2001 Mazda for you. You are so happy. Nothing against Mazdas. I'm pro-Mazda. And when we look and we show up at church and there's a possibility that there are donuts here, we are so happy. If the donuts are bigger and fresher than they were the week before, we're even happier. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's not the word that's used here. The, the word that's used here is the word makarios. And that word means that we have a deep, God-given joy that supersedes happiness. Because if we are functioning on circumstantial happiness, then none of the things that we read in 3, 4, or 5 make sense. Jesus is pointing to the problem and he is saying, for those who have God's deep joy, they mourn knowing that they are, or rather they are poor in spirit. And theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be poor in spirit is to base level realize that you are in need of something greater. God has given joy to those who have realized their spiritual bankruptcy. Because when you get there, you see that you are part of God's kingdom. Because that is God opening your eyes to what sin has done in you. God has given a deep joy to those who mourn. Why? Because when you are spiritually bankrupt, it causes you to mourn. 
And the voice to call out from God means that he has opened your eyes and empowered that voice to speak. God has given a deep joy to the meek. Why? Because no longer, the word meek, it's attached to the word gentle. It's a horse word in the Bible. I'm in Texas, you know more about horses than I do. Some of you probably rode one to church today. <laughs> but it's attached to the idea of a wild horse that's been broken. God has given joy to you when your heart is full of rage and anger and frustration, but that no longer controls you. Do you see how this is different? None of these things remind you of kings, of Aragon or Mufasa. These things aren't even present in the Avengers. The things that we read here are Jesus flipping the world upside down. God has given joy to the meek. God has given joy to those who at one time could not control themselves. But now, because they were broken and they called out to him, that they can live in control of the rage within. I was at, we've been here for a few weeks now. And I was spending some time traveling, speaking at other churches. And one week, I hear a song called Chainbreaker. I'd never heard it before. And it really is super country. Anyone heard this song besides me? It's, it's a Christian song, not by Zach Brown. I've said that multiple times. It's by a guy by the name of Zach Williams. And it's, I'll be honest with you, it's chicken fried. It is the countryest sounding song I've ever heard in church. And I'm not against it. I'm not opposed to it. That's just how I felt about it. And the first time that I heard it, I didn't love it. I didn't know why we were singing it. It, it. it felt very removed from me. But the next Sunday, I'm at another church in, in Dalton, Georgia. And this church has a huge Celebrate Recovery ministry. Celebrate Recovery is a ministry for people who are recovering, hence recover, from various issues, whether that be drugs or alcohol or whatever. And they are very consistent and they meet together every week with these who are recovering and they are worship, their accountability. It is a function of this church. So we begin to sing this song called Chainbreaker. And I'm in the room. And it just felt different because behind me, I have people who have struggled with an addiction to cocaine. I have, who have struggled with an addiction to meth. That are standing up and you almost felt the roof come off of the place when they began to sing. When the service was over, a man named Steve comes up to me and I'm talking to Steve. He and I are interacting with one another. And I can see peeking out of his sleep, scars. And Steve then takes his phone because everyone has a phone. And he shows me pictures of him in a hospital bed. And he says to me, Chad, because they told him my name. Chad, this happened when my meth lab blew up. And I kept it together. 
until his little girl who's the age of my little boy walks up while we're having that conversation and grabs him by the arm. He realized his spiritual bankruptcy. And God had used things to open his eyes to that. And all that used to control him, he now could control because somewhere he has met with a Jesus who changes people. Here's the hard part about that story though because that's not who I am. When, when I really begin to think about my own personality, I, I'm not highly emotive. I, I like to read. I, I, I spend time doing things like that. I, I like to think through, uh, I guess, high-level philosophy stuff, even though I don't sound like it. One of my main struggles in life, when it comes to the teaching of Jesus, and this may be one of your struggles too, maybe you're different than me, is that I have become satisfied that my socially acceptable sin is different than Steve's. And if we don't get to the bottom of what should cause us to be poor in spirit, then we'll never function the way that God intends for us to function. We'll never see the world in the way that God desires for us to see the world. What we see in this passage is that Jesus is pointing out the problem that we are immensely broken. And I don't have to read Bible verses for you to know the world is broken. I need you to check your Twitter feed as to the news. Not only do we point out the problem, we also see there's a pivot in the passage. It pivots at the next verse. Because those who are broken, and those who mourn over their brokenness, those who control the rage within because they've been given the ability to do so by a good God, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. God has given a deep joy to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? They'll be filled. God has given you joy when you want to know Him better. One of my hopes here is that we together will want to know Jesus better that we together will be unified around the message of Jesus. One of the things that we're going to do is on Tuesdays, I want to encourage you to supplement your own devotion. You should have a form that in your handout that says something like Tuesdays Together on it. If you have that, can you just wave at me so I can know that, oh, all right, good. I, I trust that many of you guys have devotions that you do where you meet with the Lord. I don't typically call them quiet times because that sounds like a punishment. What are you doing? Huh? Reading a book. Well, my kid's in quiet time. Uh, okay. Uh, but when you meet with the Lord on Tuesday, because we believe that God is not just opening up his word for us to gather together in this room, but he's actually taking us somewhere as a church together. I just want you to follow that lead there of a recap. Thinking through what we talked about today 
and moving forward together because of it. God's word being... God's word resting on our hearts again as to what he taught us as a body today. Uh, your kids are going to have that supplemented into their lessons eventually. We're actually doing that this week with some of the song lyrics. Some of the songs that we've sang in worship, they'll sing. That we would move forward together realizing that who we are in Lake Jackson and Clute and to the ends of Brazosport. Can I say that? Because we believe that Jesus has not called us to be personal Christians, but we are people who have had, personal, who have had a personal relationship and interaction with God. And we get to display that publicly together. That we would see that God is using his word to make us different. Because we're not just people who are to be informed, we're to be transformed. Blessed are those. God has given joy to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? Because they will be filled. They will be made new. They will be, they will see what they should seek after. So hopefully for us, we will seek after the Lord together based on what his word teaches in light of biblical community in our small groups. A word that I'm careful to even use. I know that just from the time that I've spent with you that many of you are really, really smart. You're all engineers and I'm not. And you know lots about things that I will never... I heard words last night at dinner that I do not know if they're real. They were like names of X-Men. But what I do know is that when our bend is to, to lean in that sense, mine is as well, that I can miss the transformational nature of what it means to follow Jesus. Look, God's goal for me and God's goal for you is not to be informed. If that were his goal, then he would be satisfied with a room full of historians. God's goal is for his word to make us different. His word to transform us, to make us more like him. For us to consider what God has done for us. Because if we never consider what God has done for us, we will never commit to what God will do through us. We look not to be a people who are just informed. Reading the Bible for the sake of reading the Bible. And saying that we want biblical things. I'm fine with us using the word biblical as long as we interpret that with, as this makes me more like Jesus. Because at the end of the day, God wants us to be more like Jesus than we were yesterday. Points out the problem. We also see the pivot of the passage. They hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled. Verse 7, we then begin to see how believers, those who have been transformed, how they persist in Christ's power. 7, 8, 9, and 10. God has given joy to those who are merciful because they will receive mercy. God has given joy to the pure in heart for they will see God. God has given joy to the peacemakers for they will be called the sons of God. All of these are the future tense and not yet. But all these saying, this is what the life of a transformed person looks like in the here and now. 
This is what someone who has met with Jesus looks like. Because when we meet with Jesus and he begins to affect and impact us, then that effect and that impact overflows into our world. God has given a deep joy to those who are merciful. So the question would be this. Like we believe that, right? That's not a crazy concept. That Christian people would be merciful. If you believe that Christian people should be merciful, can you simply say the word mercy? mercy. Are you merciful? If you believe that God would have us to be someone who makes peace at, to the best of our ability. Can you say peacemaker? Are you making peace? God has given his joy to those who are pure in heart. Are you pure in heart? This is all functioning differently. C.S. Lewis, who wrote those Narnia movies, he said this, enemy-occupied territory, that's what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You may even say in disguise. And he is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. To undo the broken world that we live in. God has given joy to those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Be careful with that. Because sometimes we lean into that verse and we overemphasize part and we de-emphasize the other. You are not displaying that you have been given God's deep joy when you are persecuted for being a jerk. But when Jesus has taken hold of you and your life begins to function differently than the lives around you, we see that the kingdom of heaven is ours. Please notice with me something, a, a pattern in this passage. You have a sandwich, and as you can tell, I like sandwiches. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's a right now thing. The next few are theirs will be. So you see a now, not yet, throughout this. But he closes with, verse 10, there is the kingdom of heaven for those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. That's present now. Blessed are you. You have been, been, been given God's joy when you function this way. This passage, is, it shows us what our lives would look like when we persist for the sake of Jesus. Why? Because God in the Sermon on the Mount Jesus in the Beatitudes has shown us what the life of someone who belongs to God looks like in the now. In the now. And some of these things we will not obtain. As a matter of fact, some of these things are very far from us here. But we're reminded that Jesus for us because we've been given kingdom perspective. Shepard and I, my oldest son, I have four kids in my house. Um, I have Shepard, he's nine. I have Charlie, who's six. I have Magnolia, who's four. I have Alder, who's two. And as I regularly say, two of my children are named after trees. Uh, Shepard is my oldest. And last, in 2015, December, we went to Costa Rica on a mission trip together with a group of pastor friends and, and their families. Shepard was the, one of the youngest kids on the trip. 
And when we get to Costa Rica, every day, you, basically, if you take a small kid to a mission trip, that means they make you wash dishes a lot. I washed a lot of dishes, a lot of dawn on my hands, or however you say dawn in Spanish. And while we're there, every single day, they would have a part of the day set aside for the kids to do something that's adventurous. So we have this family mission trip with some adventure, F-A-M. I didn't make that up. But when we're on the adventure part one day, they say we're going to zip line through the Costa Rican jungle. Now, when I hear the word, when I hear the phrase zip line, I immediately take my mind to places like um, Panama City, where you pay $40 to zip line and you get to go down one line, you walk away with an airbrush t shirt and a rash. That's what Panama City is. When we went to this place in Costa Rica, I paid $40 for myself and $40 for Shepard for us to zip line. We were in the jungle for three and a half hours, zipping from one tree to the next. And while we're zipping from one tree to the next, every time you would get on the line, you would be able to look down at where you had just walked. And as you would zip, you would see underneath you where you had just taken steps, what you had just experienced. You could see everything, but from a different perspective. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus calling to us to think through all that we've experienced. Brokenness and pain and hurt everyday monotony of life but to see it from his perspective to see it as someone who, is called, who he has called to change as we look at a world that is broken and we hope to see it made right and my prayer for us as a church is that as we move forward our hope would be to restore what is broken because when we choose for that to be who we are, we are choosing to, in, to the best of our ability, reflect our Savior. So, would you do this with me now? I just invite you to bow your heads. And, and I'm going to ask for us to just begin to think as to when we met with Jesus. And so when we came to know Jesus, and maybe for you that means that you take out a pen and you write on your sheet of paper, I remember when I came to know Jesus. I remember when I placed my faith in Jesus. And in writing that down and thinking through that, we're going to the place of spiritual poverty that this passage talks about. You have been given God's joy when this thing when you resonate on it, when you think through it, when you remember where you were. To consider when you called out to Jesus. Do you remember when you made a what we historically have called a profession of faith. Do you remember 
when you begin to publicly say, as verse 5 says, that God now has control of you. Remembering where we were. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Is that where you are now? Are you setting yourself up? Are you thinking through daily what it means for you to pursue Jesus? A commitment to his word. To not just knowing stuff about God, but God being God changing you through what you see in his word. And God using you in your world through what you see in his word. And just to think, 8, 9, 10, it shows what Jesus on display looks like. Do your co-workers see that you are merciful? Does your family see that? Mine doesn't always. Do they see you as someone who seeks to make peace? In our next song, I just want to invite you. Uh, If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, but you needed to hear that our lives are to look differently. For you, maybe just to use your chair as a place where you kneel and pray. Maybe you want to come to the front of the room. That's okay too. Whatever you would like. However you want to meet with God here. But just for God to, to beg God to move in us personally and through us publicly as a church. To see the world that we live in affected and impacted for the sake of Jesus. Because we've been given God's kingdom perspective. Lord, we thank you for today. And even now, God, we're going we're gonna to kneel and we're going to pray and we're going to say that we belong to you and that we trust you. God, we're going we're gonna to ask for you to do things here that we could not explain if it were not for you. We're going to pray for you to open eyes, for you to show us hurt and pain and for us to seek to meet those things because you would meet those things. That God, we would be a transformed people because you've transformed us. That we would not settle with knowing stuff, but we would, we would hope that through what you teach us in your word, we know you. That we would not just hope to be challenged each week when we gather in here because challenges get us to a parking lot. God, I pray that we would be changed. So Lord, even now, I pray that you are making us more and more like you. Would you stand with us and move as God leads you to move?